wanted to talk about spoilers, uh, uh, an issue very close to my heart. So you and I, Jane, went to the cinema last night for the first time in a long time. We actually sat in an auditorium with other people, all spaced out, at the BFI on the South Bank in London to see Sound of Metal. And I really want to talk about Sound of Metal. And, and it's a spo- this is a spoiler <laughs> alert. This is a spoiler alert, which made me want to talk about spoilers. So before you start talking about spoilers, I, I want, want to give the official spoiler alert, which is that, just to say, Sound of Metal is a fantastic film, which I highly recommend everyone to see. And mm. if you are going to go and see it, and please do go and see it, because it's a really important film, I think. Um, and you don't want to know what happens, don't listen to this podcast just yet, but, but come back to it after you've seen the film. Well, I'm going to say, listen to the first half of this podcast, because I want to talk about spoilers before we do a spoiler. Okay. So I've got a thing about spoilers, and I've had a thing about spoilers for a long time, I realise. Right back since 24. You remember 24, the Kiefer Sutherland 24-episode uh, drama that took place over 24 hours and that series for me feels like the beginning of the binge culture around drama because they used to release one a week but then on the fourth week they'd release they'd show all four together back to back so the ones that you'd missed and this must be mm, getting on for 20 years ago now i, I maybe, guess actually i'm maybe just thinking 15 to 20 years ago and we got into it, not halfway, but somewhere along the ride, and we caught up using these little kind of binge monthly four-episode bonanzas. And then I remember it was out, on, came out on a Sunday night. That's when it was aired. And we bought the newspaper the Sunday of the final episode. Or I bought the Sunday newspaper. I bought The Observer. I remember going down, picking it up from the shop, and on the, on the masthead, on the front page, and here's a spoiler for the first season of 24 if you haven't seen it, but there was a little picture of a character called Nina, who was a very integral character, colleague of Kiefer Sutherland's. And there was a little picture of her right at the top right-hand corner. It said TV, picture of her, and it said, Nina, how could you? <laughs> And we'd been, tr- we'd been all on tenterhooks about who the mole was. And I saw it and I knew. And my heart dropped. And I thought, how, how have you done that? Which editor and allowed... And I wish TV editor allowed them to, to do that. Allowed them to do that. And, and, I, and I ripped off the corner of the newspaper <laughs> so you wouldn't see it. And I said, there's been a terrible spoiler. And then I, and I watched the final episode. So I think that, was, that planted the seed in my head that, oh, that's how you can ruin the experience of a story, basically. And I've got, I've got another... Uh, another kind of personal story with a friend of ours who came to the door and she still relates this to this day. And I can't even remember what it was, but it was a TV drama. Was it Broadchurch or something? Maybe. Possibly. Can't remember. Can't remember. A TV drama we were all enjoying. It might have actually been one of the Scandi Noir ones. And she, even though she knew she was ahead of us and I possibly even finished it, she said something and she registered 
the I'd said, don't say, don't say anything. And then she said just a few things and she could see my face. And she's like, to this day, you've never forgiven me, have you? You've <laughs> never forgiven me. And so I was thinking about haven't. it. Because I haven't. <laughs> but, it, but it has underlined for me this thing that I've had about spoilers. And the fact that now in, on, in TV and film reviews, quite often I find that I can't get further than the first paragraph because... They start to tell me the story or or a trailer on telly. I'm all the time, we get a few seconds into a trailer and I'm turning it off going, I know I want to see this. I don't need to see any more. They're going to give me the best bits. Why do you need to tell me the story when you're also trying to encourage me to watch the story? And And that's the thing that I find so frustrating because, and now, you know, we're talking about story and storytelling and thinking about it so much of the time it's because what stories do so wonderfully is they take us on a journey and that journey is reliant on curiosity expectation anticipation not knowing having an assumption that's then turned on its head it's it's it uses all those techniques to keep us engaged on that journey and that is why it's so wonderful so i'm kind of really bemused as to why people feel that that it's necessary to kind of tell us as much as they do. So say I'm reading a review of a film, I'd love to know what the subject is. And I might even like to know something about how it's shot and how it looks and the feeling of it. And I might like to know if the critic liked it or didn't like it. But do they need to take me through moments in the film that might then be ruined for me or I might not enjoy as so much? Because I know them. The first time I, I kind of registered this, I mean, obviously I know those stories that you're talking about. Um, you know I'm obsessed. Yeah, and you're, you're obsessed with it. I, I think about it in a slightly different way, and I'll, and I'll get to that. Um, but the first time that I, that I really remember this was, um, so I'm going back to the 1970s and how I mm. really loved Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm. And so... Yeah, I went to see that film kind of seven times or something. And you see the aliens, you know, right at the end and they're shot so that you see the shadows of them. You don't really see Mm. what they're like. And that is a great example of less is more because you see the effects of them all the way through the film, Mm -hmm. but you don't actually see them because in the end... You know, it's hard. We all know that we're looking at a piece of latex kid with a big sort of head stuck on him. Um, kind of thing. Um, and then when Steven Spielberg made E.T. after Close mm. Encounters, the, it was a closed set. Um, there was an absolute newspaper ban mm. Mm. on printing any photographs of what that alien was going to look like. And in the film itself, you, again, you don't see E.T. for you know, a long time. You see his fingers picking up skittles mm. or whatever mm. he's doing. You know. mm. um, and I think it was the Daily Mirror published a photograph of E.T. before the film opened. And I remember a friend of mine um, just telling me the story of how he opened up the Daily Mirror and then just closed it straight away because he'd just seen this thing that he he didn't want to see. Um, So this is like, you know, the 70s and the 80s. Now, I think... 
because they release whole series of things straight yes. away. And I am on Twitter. I, I think I have a I have a different attitude to you. I've I've taught myself a different attitude maybe because I remember the twenty four moments and I remember feeling that is ridiculous to just bust the yeah. whole series in with that headline. It's with a just, bit of kind of lazy journalism, yeah, it seems like. It's just really thoughtless. Um and now I think I've taught myself to be a little bit more um, sanguine, <laughs> sanguine about it because it's really hard nowadays to, un- yeah. you know, unless you watch something really fast mm. to, to not get spoilers about it. And trailers now do seem to be designed to actually be like a condensed version of the whole movie so that, you know, um, which is frustrating but so I'm more I'm more sanguine about it now. And there's an exercise that we do in workshops where we're teaching mm. people about storytelling, which is people work on a story. People work mm. on where the story is going to start, where the story is going to end, what the last line of the story is going to be and what are the places along the way that the story is going to go. Mm. Um, so they work on that building, that structure, which is really helpful. And then when they tell it, we get them to speak the last line first. Now, we do that so that they, um, as tellers, they always know where they're going. They know Mm. what the focus, they know what the intention of the story is, and it keeps them on track for Mm. the three minutes or whatever. So it's useful for that. And I always observe, and so this is counter to your spoilers don't always spoil, that when I'm listening to a story where I know what the last line is, uh, very often I notice that it's, um, it builds this really pleasurable, oh, mm. I, 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 think I, know, I think I know what's going to happen. Or I'm watching or I'm listening to something earlier in the story thinking, well, I don't know how I'm going to go get to this last line, which I've already heard. And either way, there's something pleasurable about it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an advocate for knowing exactly the story before... Mm. You watch it, but if I watch an adaptation of Anna Karenina, you know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen, and it doesn't impede my my enjoyment of it. Oh, it's really interesting, isn't it? You've got me kind of thinking about all of those kind of stories. If we think of the film Titanic. You know, we know yeah. the film <laughs> crashes into an iceberg. The film crashes into an Sorry, iceberg. Sorry, we know the... No, it didn't. <laughs> the did film it. very much didn't crash no, into an iceberg. We know that the boat crashes into an iceberg, but we don't know that only Rose is going to survive out of Rose and Jack. Oh, well, or do we? No, we don't, really. No, we, we don't. don't. So, we don't. Um, but now it's got me Spoiler thinking. Spoiler alert, even that was, <laughs> if you've never seen Titanic. But I can't believe there's an, anybody hasn't but seen But even if it, it did, maybe you're right. Maybe it would still be enjoyable. So then we're talking about dramatic irony in, in the sense that we see a film about, um, you know, the Somme and people going over the top mm. and preparing to go over the top. We know what's going to happen to nine out of ten of them if not all of them, you know, we, and that doesn't, and in fact, as you say, it increases our sense of anticipation and increases um, our connection to the people because we actually know what's going to happen to them. It increases the pathos of us knowing their fate 
if you like. Mm. But you watch a James Bond film, you know, the latest James Bond film that, of course, hasn't come out, No Time to Die. Well, he's not going to die. <laughs> We're not thinking that the franchise is going to end with this film, and yet there will be multiple moments in that film where, oh, he could die now, but he's not going to. Mm. So it's interesting how storytelling can play with that expectation and take us right to the brink. And if you think of something like James Bond, what will make that enjoyable is how the hell is he going to get out of this? Because really, he's got to die now, even though we know he's not going to. He's in a room that's filling up with water and there's a shark and there's a this and there's a that and, and his hands are, you know, handcuffed. There's no way he can escape. And yet we know he's got to. So that tension between knowing that he will escape and it seeming like he absolutely can't is where the kind of, mm. where the pleasurable dynamic as a viewer is. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's about um, playing with the idea that your listener or your viewer um, thinks they know this story. Like with Titanic, for example. Mm. Okay, you think mm. you know about this. You think you know about what happened on that boat Mm. and sure in one sense you do and you know it so well that we're just going to remind you exactly what happened but then actually in the playing out because of the immersion into Mm. two characters particularly Mm. and their journey there's a possibility to reveal to us all the things that that we don't know you know I mean and they they play with that idea because we have the musicians kind of sitting down and playing because that's one of the most famous tropes about the Titanic that the band played on um but but then they show us lots of hidden things as well that we don't know so it's a really sophisticated kind of storytelling because it's like saying you think you've got this well you have and here's where you haven't and what they do is I, I think really kind of brilliantly James Cameron has the, you know, the us sit and watch the simulation on the computer of what happens to the boat. So not only do we know it's going to sink, but we know that it happens in these stages. And first this bit will go down and then it'll pull the other bit and it'll go upright. So as Jack and Rose are going through those moments, we know, oh, this is the pause before this happens, or this is the moment when it's about to go upright and and all that. And as you're saying, through those characters, we're taken into lots of different ideas around class, um, around how men and women uh, were treated on the boat in terms of getting off it, Mm. Um, you know, lifeboats being empty, all those kind of things. Um, We're taken into... Leadership that we learn about, about the captain about the designer of the boats about yeah. there's there's all sorts of all sorts extra of stuff that we don't know it's making me think about um particular stories that i've heard on workshops mm. where i will make an assumption mm. that i i know what's happening or what is going to happen and the devices that people those storytellers in workshops have have used to confound me mm. as as a listener because it, it it just i mean it gives you an opportunity actually of course to learn about your listening because you notice the assumptions that you make about particular things i don't know mm-hmm. if you remember the story of a woman on i think she's on a she was on a bus or an underground and she had her handbag on her lap she was kind of dressed up and so i thought oh she's going out on a date and 
she opens her handbag and in her handbag was a brick and it oh, changed yes. and it changed the story completely <laughs> just that one detail and it went from a, a woman going out on a date and then she, and then she's walking down streets and it's early evening and she's looking in the windows of the houses and as and the we're listener now, we have a different perspective yeah, and, and we have like, a, you know and we have a completely different perspective that she's not going to you know because the feeling was that she's going to meet her lover or something and but now we know that she's got a brick in her handbag so so when we learn something in a story really changes how we listen to the story and what we assume is going to happen and what we think, you know, what we think is going on. That's a brilliant example of a detail because it's like um, there's only so many reasons you'd have a brick in your handbag. (laughs) It's really simple, isn't it? And kind of metaphorical what a brick in a handbag might mean. It's not like there's there's not many directions you can go with that idea. Yeah, because the and I juxt- think and I think that idea was right. In the, the juxtaposition of two objects yeah. together, a brick in in a handbag, because the inside of a handbag is very often lined with silk or some kind mm. of material, mm. and you mm. keep small personal things in it that can be quite precious. Mm. And so to put in there, um, you know, a dirty, earthy object is is a is a great clashing in a mm. in a story. And why would anybody carry a brick in anything? Not for, you know, not only for a handful of reasons that would come would spring to mind. So we, we get to then have that assumption and she can then play with that assumption and either uh, disabuse us or confirm it. But what, it, what it's making me think about as well is I'm kind of pondering on this whole thing about, oh, yes, it can be very enjoyable to know to know where we're going. Um, kind of to, to know more than the character in the story at um, at the point that they're in the story because we know the end of the story. Yes. And is it that so much drama is constructed around kind of narrative revelation, you know, event revelation, if we think of something like... Um, line of duty recently yeah so yeah. much of it is about what's the twist going to be what in this episode is going to be revealed that wasn't what we thought it was going to be so so there's a lot of emphasis on event revelation if you like yeah which is why twitter went absolutely crazy at the end of the last series of line of duty right right so so if there's so much emphasis on that um that's why when we when when that's revealed to us the rest of it kind of crumbles in our hands really um rather than the real enjoyment of being on the journey with the characters whether it's rose and jack or whoever it is um or somebody telling us a story in a workshop we may have been given the last line first we may actually have heard them working on the story and know a fair amount about the story but really being taken on the journey can still be really enjoyable because it's the journey, it's our connection to them as a person, it's the detail that they reveal to us, micro moment to moment, not just event moment, revelation mm. or something. Uh, yeah, and I think Jed Mercurio's point when he talked about, you know, because people were very upset that there wasn't this great, you know, reveal where there the was end of this line kind of... Duty, of yeah, is. where there was this... 
um, you know, the, there wasn't a reveal about a big villain who was orchestrating everything, or leastways, it, it didn't play out in the way that people mm-hmm. wanted it to play out. And I read him talking about how, well, in life, it's mm. it's not always like that. And big people, dramatic revelations. And people do get away with things. It's, you know, you don't always have the satisfaction of seeing your ultimate villain who you might have been tracking for 10 mm. years mm. or however long that series has been, you know, running. You don't always see that. So he wanted to reflect life in that, particularly now when we are living in a time where there seems to be minimal accountability for people. So it's it's like... Yes, it's not always big dramatic revelations. Sometimes things just happen through accident, through a bit of incompetence, mm. through just a bit of random causality, which is accident, I guess. Um, you know, things just happen. I was, I was supposed to come back to your your thing about um, spoilers mm. and your you know your absolute aversion to them. <laughs> is that? You never know what the spoiler is going to be that is actually going to spoil it because if there are some spoilers or rather some pieces of information that might enhance your Mm. enjoyment of something because Mm. you kind of have a sense of where you might be headed in the story Mm -hmm. and there will be some things that will just blow it out of the water because if it's if it's really predicated on the suspense the not knowing the Mm. going down lots of different alleys well if you know who it's going to be in the end or what it's going to be in the end then yeah it is going to be spoiled you won't you can't go on the journey so so maybe you're right to have an aversion to well i guess you know i can if i can trust um an artist a creative to to uh, reveal some things to me ahead of time. I can trust James Cameron to um, show me things. That's not a great example. But, you know, I don't necessarily think I can trust the person that's edited a trailer um, because they're edited to do a specific thing, which is to hook somebody to watch it, not to give to enhance their experience of the thing that they're trailing mm. it's just to get them to turn on and watch and the amount of times we turned on and watched and felt well the trailer had all the best bits yeah because the trailer is just there as the as the temptation to watch it so you know if if i can trust the person who edits and constructs a trailer not sure if i can trust totally the reviewer to just give me the things that are going to enhance and not um, in, you know, impact negatively on my enjoyment, then maybe I could let myself read all those reviews and watch all those trailers, not leave the room as I have to now. I think, I think it'd be quite a good conversation with a film director, actually, about what they think about the trailers of their films. Well, and, and having produced a couple of films and um, certainly been at the end of watching a trailer that was made by a, a distribution company... Um, for us and just saying this is this is not representative of our film and having to insist that they recut it which was a tough call because they were like well you know we've got to sell it it's like you've got to sell it to people that are going to enjoy it because it's representative so to be continued that yeah sound of metal sound of metal switch off now if you don't (laughs) want to hear more I found it an incredibly um, moving experience watching that film. I knew a little bit 
about it. Um, mm. It's uh, about the journey of somebody, a musician, who loses his hearing. Um, and, and that's sort of what I knew about it. But actually the, the, the journey of the film took me on to, into a whole um, different exploration about listening and what it means to listen and, and even discovering, you know, the film started and uh, there was a, a notification that there would be captions, mm. subtitles mm. on the film. And, and I must admit that I had, you know, like a flash of, oh, damn it, I wouldn't have chosen to come to this if I'd known that it, ha it had captions. Because I know that when I'm watching a film and it has subtitles, I find it really, really hard not to look at the subtitles because I guess my, um, y you know, my visual sense is really dominant. And if there's something written there, um, I, have to, <laughs> I have to look at it. So actually, through watching the film, I had to train myself to not look to not watch the subtitles. Um, and then I discovered afterwards that the filmmaker, Darius Marder, um, has dedicated the film to his grandmother, who was deaf, mm. who campaigned her whole life for open captioning of films because what she felt she lost most in losing her hearing was the mm. ability to go to the cinema. Um, and so I understood why it's his intention that all screenings of the film are screened with captions. And in fact, it raised my awareness about what it is to be without hearing watching a film and yeah. how that experience would be different. So the payoff for my you know, two seconds of annoyance and then having to work to not read the subtitles, and occasionally I did and occasionally I didn't, um, actually enhanced my enjoyment of the film because it really, it really helped me to empathise with not just the characters in the film, but the people all around me who don't have full hearing. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm getting older. I don't know that I have full hearing anymore. So I, I think it was an amazing revelation when, as we walked away from the cinema, you said, oh, oh, yes, all of them are captioned. It was like, well, of course, if you think of what the film's about, mm. the whole film mm. is about um, not disabilizing people that uh, don't have their hearing. Uh, you know, when he joins that community and then gets kicked out of that community, it's all about, no, in this community, we don't see this as a disablement. We don't see something this that we need to fix. as something we need to fix. And it's like, well, of course. So I had, I similarly had that slight oh, we've chosen the one that's got subtitles. And I think it, as you were talking about it, it reminded me of what we talk about when we talk to, to people about PowerPoints. It's like, don't put the words on the screen that you're then going to read. Yeah. In fact, really try not to put too many words on the screen because we'll read them. Even if you're saying them, we will read them. And actually, you know, if somebody's doing a PowerPoint or a live presentation to you, the most powerful communication is with, with them as a person, as a human being, not with the ideas in black and white on a, on a screen. So, yes, of course, you'll read them. And I was trying to do the same and train myself out. And then, of course, there's bits 
when they speak French. And then yeah. it's like, oh, well, these are subtitled. Oh, so they must have, have, have versions where just these bits are subtitled. But of course not. The, the subtitles are just all the way through, French, English, whatever. And yeah, absolutely. It's, it's opened my mind to the idea of, oh, there'll be... This isn't this isn't a, a live experience where there's performances where people who have a hearing disability go to see it, and then ones where we go to see it. Oh, and we've chosen one of the ones where people who can't hear have gone to see it. Mm. What a shame! Um, it's just oh no, this is all about that. It's all about this guy not being able to hear, and it made me also think about the difference between hearing and listening. He loses his ability to hear, but it's you, you realise that listening is more than just with your ears or with your brain, you know, as he gets his implants and he can listen, can tap into the bit of the brain that receives mm. the signals and bypass the ear. It's like he can makes him believe that he's hearing. But listening is something different to hearing. And that final moment, final moment, everybody, if you haven't seen it, final moment when he takes those off and he's in that silence, it's kind of like his listening of the world is so much more acute or something or so much more open. There's that whole idea about seeking to find that moment of stillness when he's being asked when he's um, staying in that community he goes off every morning early to, to have that kind of meditative practice of writing and the instruction has been to always seek to find the point when he can just be still mm. neither pacing around raging or writing but still and what the guy who runs that community says afterwards is that moment will never desert you look keep looking for that moment almost is his invitation it's like at the end of the film he finds that moment which was which was very moving and kind of um hopeful to me and and enlightening to me as a as a human being who is hearing to seek for that meditative mindful moment of stillness amongst all the noise of stimulus that we get so it made me just think that listening, we listen through our pores, through every um, element of our bodies, not just through our ears. We listen with our eyes and all, our, all of our senses. We listen with our brain. We listen with our being. Yeah, the thing for me that, that I thought was really hopeful was just the evocation of life in that community of people who couldn't hear one another mm. but the ways that the other ways mm. that they listened to one another you know like uh practically the guy who runs the community who mm. would you know watch his lips so therefore it was really important that he didn't have his hands around his mouth because he did a lot of lip reading but also we saw characters really looking at one another and just looking at the micro expressions mm -hmm. or being very sensitive mm -hmm. to mood and we saw characters touching one another to get attention or to soothe or you know whatever it was and so of course was, signing and, and of course signing so there were all these other 
ways, other mm. senses that can mm. come into play, you know, so that this idea of, yeah, listening is, is not just with our ears. Um, and practically, I have to say, it did make me think about our work, which is about oral storytelling and, mm. you know, the fact that up to now, we haven't put captions on any films that we've mm. put out on our social media. And I know that people are beginning to do that more and more mm. to, to caption things um, because it's about accessibility. But it's just made me think about, yeah, how do we how do we shape our workshops for people who can't hear, who can't listen to the stories in with their ears? So how do we do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Final thought from me is around kind of reframing. We talk about there being a multiplicity of stories and just very simply what they're trying to do in that community that's represented in that film is reframe the idea of deafness as something not to be fixed. And that I'm just left thinking that multiplicity of stories, we think we thought in those opening moments, oh, we've come to the wrong showing. Oh, well, let's make the most of it. You know, the we came out of that film, read that thing, and that reframed our experience of the film. And just that, that idea of perspectives on stories, it doesn't take much to change the perspective, you know, from that moment at the beginning of the film to the moment at the end when you read that to me. Um, and we always have that opportunity to reframe the story, reframe the way that the story is habitually told to us or that we tell it to ourselves, just as that film reframes that idea of disability. Hmm. Good place to finish.